Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. If you have a Bible, why don't you open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and we've got a pair of readers that I'll invite up. This is a reading from Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from my, any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. You know, a number of years ago when I was in my early 20s, my father had become pretty ill and needed a pair of unplanned surgeries. And I was living here in San Diego, the rest of my family were on the East Coast, and, and although my mom had downplayed the severity of the situation, I could hear and hear the concern in her tone, and, and I suggested, well, maybe I could fly East, not that I could do anything, but just for us all to be together and wait and see kind of how all of these things would play out. And my mom was quick to respond and say that, no, it's unnecessary, and to remind me that I had a job, and I was a newlywed, and... However, though, after a quick conversation with my wife and then a quick email being shot out to my employer, I was off to the airport to catch the next flight uh, the next morning headed to the East Coast. And if memory serves me right, and my wife will probably tell you, it doesn't often do that for me. Uh, it was right before I boarded the flight that I called one of my younger brothers, Casey, because I hadn't told my parents about purchasing the ticket, knowing that it would stress them out and that they would argue and feel bad about my choice to go despite even the money involved in that decision. But I also hadn't had the time to book a rental car to pick, or to pick up from the airport in order to get to them. And this was back, as my children would say, in the 1900s before Uber or Lyft. And so I thought this might create a little interesting predicament. And so I called my younger brother and then tried to quickly think on my feet how I could describe this to him without giving away the whole of the details because I didn't really want to tell them that I was flying out because I didn't want him to pass along the information to our parents. My dad going into surgery was very well known for his keen ability to stress about even the smallest of things. And so I didn't want to add to his list. But about the 15 second mark into the phone call with my brother, I realized what an odd request I was making to him. I was asking him, Casey, are you working today? Well, well no, I, I don't work today. Well, then I need you to drive to the airport this afternoon, and I, I really can't explain any of the details over the phone right now, but I'll call you back around 4.30. I just need you to be in the cell phone waiting lot, just waiting for the call, and then I'll call you later with all of the details, okay? But I got to go right now. Okay, bye. And then hung up the phone. Like asking a person to spend an hour or two of their afternoon driving to this sparsely filled, like, remote parking lot to sit and wait with no explanation as to why is really a rather odd request. And as I found myself vaguely monologuing with him from my cell phone while about to board my flight, I began to realize just how weird of an ask it was and how unlikely it was to convince someone to spend a bit of their afternoon doing just that. Because really the inescapable question that I was determined to avoid by quickly ending the call and turning my phone off was him just asking, well, why? 
Like, no, you need to really explain why to me. Why spend an hour of my afternoon doing something that may have literally zero purpose? What will it accomplish or gain? Or what's the point of me getting off my backside off the couch and, and of rearranging my schedule and priorities to do what you're asking me to do if I don't even know what, ser- what purpose it serves? Now, for me, thankfully, I have a very loving and even trusting younger brother who showed up and waited without an explanation as I walked up to his car, and then our family visit ended up being wonderful, and my dad was discharged from the hospital later that day, and we all lived happily ever after. But think about this with me. Please hear me. You and I, all of us, would ask questions like I'm sure Casey wanted to ask in that moment before I could hang up and not allow him uh, to ask them. Questions like, well, hey, why? Or what's the point? about how we'd even spend, we would ask questions like that about how we'd even spend a simple hour on a Saturday afternoon. But for so many people, they don't have the courage to ask those same kinds of questions about the way that they'll spend the whole of their life in existence. Asking the questions of why and what will it accomplish or gain or what's the point of it all? Why is there any purpose in me doing this? Does anything more or anything bigger than an alarm clock get you up out of bed in the morning? Because I think for so many people, they don't have much more than that. But the voice of Ecclesiastes will not allow us to hide from those kinds of questions about even our very existence. Remember, the voice of Ecclesiastes, it's really two voices. It's one, the author who believes that you need to hear from the preacher. And then it's the preacher who believes that you need your bubble burst. As one scholar made it clear, and I've quoted it to you each week, that the book of Ecclesiastes is not positive. It actually has a negative role in the Bible. The book of Ecclesiastes is essentially time to deconstruct everything that you thought you knew about life and the world to reduce you to your knees by the end so that the good news can, in fact, become good news. Or as I quoted to you last week, Professor Peter Kreef said that Ecclesiastes is the question to which Christ is the answer. You see, Ecclesiastes won't let us look away from the brokenness in our world, from the system glitches we find all around us. It serves as a provocateur in order to goad us, to poke at us, to push us in the right direction where we're asking ourselves the right questions and hopefully drawing the right conclusions. His goal is not to depress you, it's to free you from the empty entrapments that are found in a sin-splintered, broken world. Remember, the whole of the book is a man's journey to discover what the meaning of life is, or the way we've been asking us, what what makes for the good life? It's found in chapter 1, verse 3, as it just begins his dissertation, where he says, what profit has a man from all of his labor in which he toils under the sun? He's asking, what does a person gain or profit? What do you have to show for your life's work? He's asking the hard question. That although we'd ask it about how we'd spend a Saturday afternoon, so many lack the courage to ask it about life in a broken world at all. And when the answer is that a grave is there to greet you on the other side of your life, and then he tells you, and all that you've worked for is unable to be experienced or enjoyed by you in that moment, well, then he speaks up and says, it's all hevel. Remember vanity. It's all empty. It's a puff of smoke. It's here in a moment and gone in the next. And like smoke, it's present, but not able to be grasped or held on to. He's saying that all of life is this vague mystery. Remember, the voice of Ecclesiastes is assuming that all that is seen is all that there is. He refers to that mentality as life under the sun. It's his way of describing a life that is lived as if there's nothing beyond this life. He's, he's expressing a belief or living with the belief that there's nothing above or beyond this sun, only what's underneath it. In his book, Living on the Ragged Edge, Char- author Charles Swindoll, he's defined life under the sun as the voice of Ecclesiastes, and I quote, looking under the heavens to find happiness without God. So who is our seemingly sad, mysterious preacher here? Remember, he introduced himself to us as a preacher. It's a Hebrew word, Koheleth. It means the preacher, the man with something to say to the assembly. He's the one with the message for the masses. He believed that his message had a broad appeal and application, that it could stretch across all of society, but also stretch across all of time into every human era, which is something that we're starting to realize he was not wrong about, because it still is addressing us some thousands of years later. Now, give me 60 seconds of nerd time to ask the question of like, okay, but who who do we actually think he is? 
Who is the preacher? It really, it's better defined as the philosopher because a good preacher is going to ask questions and a- answer them. You've probably already begun to see this guy's more of a philosophy professor who's just asking the questions and letting you sit in the tension. When in verse 1 of chapter 1, he identifies himself as a son of David, of the line of David, and that he was a king in Jerusalem. And so most people throughout church history believe that this was Solomon, who's the author here. But there's some scholarly debate encompassed around the linguistic form of the book about whether or not it was in fact Solomon. There's really arguments on both sides of this. And there's even some biblical and historical debate regarding whether or not Solomon was the voice of Ecclesiastes for at least a few reasons, and I'll rattle them off real quick for you. One of them is at the end of his life, Solomon, in his old age, was an apostate. He was surrounded by hundreds of wives from foreign lands that formed alliances and then that led him into idolatry, worshiping these false gods at the end of his life. It's the Proverbs, another reason why some people speculate, could this have been Solomon? The Proverbs are, Solomon introduces himself when it is his Proverbs that he's writing. He wants you to be clear that it is him. He self-identifies where he's, he doesn't really clearly do that here. In chapter 116, verse 16, he says, Look, whoever the author is, or, or excuse me, the voice, the preacher, Look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Although Solomon is the third king in Israel, it's Saul, David, then Solomon. Solomon is only the second king to reign in Israel. His father David was the only one that preceded him. And so some would just point at that and say it's kind of an odd flex for the guy to be commenting on like, I'm the wisest man to ever reign in Jerusalem when there's only one person who ever did it before him. It it was his own father. So whether Solomon, though, or some other future king or an ancient linguistic form of writing where the author is embodying a Solomon-like caricature, whoever this is, whatever it is, whether a biography, an autobiography, or a ghosted autobiography, it really doesn't matter. As you've already begun to see, his message is clear and inescapable for all of humanity, really throughout all of human history, and that's that life under the sun is hevel. Remember, it's that puff of smoke. It's here in an instant, gone in the next. And while it's there, we try to grasp it and understand it, and we're left with nothing. We can't comprehend it. It's an enigma. It has within it, life does, all of these paradoxes. And see, we're asking, along with the preacher, what makes for the good life? And the truth is, for many of us, in our experience under the sun, we live it with the belief that if I only had more pleasure, then I'd be satisfied. If I had more pleasure than the whole of my existence, all of this pain, the struggle, the setbacks in life, they'd all seem worth it if only my life was filled with more pleasure than pain. But the preacher will be for us in the passage we just read to us. He will be for us a spokesman and a figurehead who today yells back from his own life experience saying, no, it won't. Pleasure won't leave you more satisfied. He's telling us, I tried that too, and it failed to produce what I had hoped that it would. Now, if you think about it, whether Solomon or a Solomon-like figure, he seemingly has all of the resources in the world at his disposal as he sets out to purchase and experience all that we think and say, well, if I only had that form of pleasure, if it was only within reach, then I'd be happy. But what we find is the opposite is true. You see, the new section begins in chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, as you just heard read to you from the New King James Version, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you. I'm testing my own heart. Remember, for happiness, for purpose of life. And he's saying, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was vanity. Not about you, but mirth is not a word I usually am like slinging around much anymore. It's probably an old term that most of us are not familiar with, or at least I am not. But it speaks of, if you look at dictionary.com, it speaks of amusement or laughter. Its opposite is gloom. Think of that. Its opposite is gloom. Another translation, the New Living Translation, says it this way. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. The Amplified Bible says it this way. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure and gratification. So enjoy yourself and have a good time. But behold, this too was vanity. 
It's not surprising that our spokesman and preacher would pursue pleasure, mirth, after his failed attempts to find meaning and purpose for life using human wisdom under the sun. Remember, a worldview void of God, trying to understand the brokenness of our world and the purpose of life and how to find a good life. He tried using wisdom, and as we discussed last week, that pursuit left him empty and sorrowful with a doom and gloom mentality. And now he's choosing the opposites of doom and gloom. Mirth, pleasure, a party or two. Remember what he found at the end of his pursuit of wisdom is found in chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, for in much wisdom, what did he find? He said he found much grief. And he who increases knowledge, what did he say he found? He said he increased in sorrow. So today we find him running in the absolute opposite direction of gloom, running towards pleasure in every form as a way of escape from what we will find to be an inescapable reality, or in his words, that it too is hevel. It too is a mystery. It too is the puff of smoke that can't be grasped or understood. Remember, the preacher's just taken us on a journey utilizing human wisdom that was considering if nothing lasts, and even we don't last, then what's the purpose or the point of it all? Or in other words, if my origin is meaningless and my future is meaningless, then how is my life anything other than meaningless? Koheleth, this preacher, the voice of Ecclesiastes, says that he then tried something new. You remember from last week, madness and folly. And madness in this worldview of life under the sun is to believe that it's true, that there's no significance in your origin and no significance in your future and therefore no significance in your life and yet live as if it's not true. To live in a mindless manner, living mindlessly in an illogical, irrational way. And we talked last week about how so many people in the 21st century are doing just this, where their hearts are betraying. They won't allow us to live the kinds of lives that our minds are telling us that we ought to live. Our hearts betray us and betray the narrative that we're pressured to believe that we have no origin and we have no future, but somehow our life still has incredible significance. This is the bleak and escapable reality the preacher is forcing us to look at. He's not allowing us to look away from it. Either that everything means everything, or that nothing means anything at all. And for us, remember, Jesus is not merely another view of reality. We know that Jesus is the ultimate reality, the key to unlocking it all. As we said last week, he's the logos because of the resurrection. This is why we're certain that our faith in Jesus is not what everyone else seems to be doing. Us just doing what they're doing and grasping for something as we're trying to look away from everything that's bleak and hopeless in this sin-splintered, broken world. In the end, just grabbing onto some other false reality. It's not that. No, this is the way we view ultimate reality, and the resurrection is what proves it's not that. It proves that Jesus is just that, the ultimate reality that it's not just our grasping for something, trying to distract ourselves. No, we live every day with the confidence that it matters every day, every moment does, that everything matters because we have a risen Savior and a living hope. That's what we hold on to. But what we've now found is that our teacher and guide on our journey to find meaning and purpose in life, he's turned away from those cold, harsh realities to find an escape and pleasure. And it's not surprising, is it? For all of humanity, the option is either look at the futility of life with your despair, asking, what is the point? And grief and sorrow will be there to greet you in a worldview void of God. Or your other option, rather than looking at it, is to look away from it, to do your best to distract yourself and not think about it. If more thought equals more sorrow than less thought, surely should equal less sorrow. And this is what so many people choose to do, I think, both outside the church, but I think also inside the church. They don't want to think about reality realistically. And so pleasure becomes the drug of choice to distract the mind and not think about how hard things can be. But the the preacher speaks up here and says, pleasure in parties couldn't fix or fill the emptiness that he carried inside. You see, our preacher and guide will embody here the modern mantra of if it feels good, just do it. 
But what he reports back to us at the end of that mentality and pursuit is the statement where he just says it was all empty and meaningless. It was Hevel. You see, when you look at the way that he chooses to communicate the pursuit of pleasure, we can quickly surmise that trying to make pleasure your reason for existence and the answer for your own brokenness that you encounter in a life under the sun, you quickly surmise two things. One is that it's a selfish pursuit, and the second is that it's a really empty pursuit just to pursue pleasure. I say it's a selfish pursuit because, as you see in the text, there's this pattern in his pursuit for pleasure, and it's that he keeps saying again and again, I sought to do this. This is what I wanted, so I went after it. The second half of verse 3, I search in my heart how to gratify my flesh. His eyes are turned away from anyone else and only looking at himself. Whatever my eyes, he says, verse 10, desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. You see, the only mention of people here in this whole rant about him searching for pleasure is purely made in an indirect way. Oh, sure, verse 2, if they can make him laugh, he seems okay with them. Verse 3, if they will party with him, he's fine with them being along for the ride. If they're admiring all of his wealth and the accomplishments, well, then he may even like them. Or in verse 8, if they yield to his sexual appetites, then by all means come around. You see, verse 8 has this obscure word that's translated so different in every translation that's probably represented here in this room, where it comments that he pursued the delights of the sons of men, and then in the New King James it says, and musical instruments of all kinds. Whereas other translations, rather than musical instruments, they translate it, and concubines of all kinds. Concubines, these are wives with no rights. These are women that there's no legally binding any commitments and nothing ever given to them that solely are objectified and used for sexual passion and pleasure. This is broken. The Hebrew word that's used here occurs nowhere else in scripture, which is why Bible translators and commentaries have such a wide variety of guesses about what it means. But if you reduce this old ancient a mysterious word down to its entomology, it leaves scholars with their best guess and clue as to what this guy, Koheleth, the preacher, says that he indulged in, and the word that's used is most akin to a Canaanite word for concubine. So if this is King Solomon writing, then it pairs very well with the rest of history and what the scriptures tell us about his harem that held 700 wives and 300 concubines. The earliest of the English translations, which are the Bishop's Bible and then the Geneva Bible in the mid-1500s, they translated it to mean, and I quote, women taken captive. The idea is women who are held for a purpose. It's describing a concubine, which is why most translations and scholars say it's speaking of a wide arraignment of concubines of all kinds. The preacher is saying this. He's saying he indulged his sexual appetites in all kinds of foreign exotic women, which describes Solomon to a T, something that God forbid him to do, from doing, and that led Solomon far from God and into destruction when he was determined any ways to do it. You see, I say that it's a selfish pursuit because the only thing mentioned of other people is purely in this indirect way of how he would use them so that worse still than them being just indirectly mentions, his mention of others is really so that he could exploit and use them. He's exploiting and using those he's partying with, those who are keeping him entertained and laughing, or those who he's using to fuel his desire for admiration, and those that he even is trying to use to gratify his sexual appetites with. You see, when you look at how he chooses to communicate the pursuit of pleasure, you quickly surmise that he's trying to make pleasure his reason for existence and the answer for the brokenness of life that you encounter in life under the sun. When you do that, you are both pursuing something that's selfish, but he also is very, very clear. You're pursuing something that's empty. Look at what he says this pursuit gave him. Look and see for yourself how empty he said it was. Again, chapter 2, verse 1, he begins by telling you, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, but surely this was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? There's an old comedian, some of you may be familiar with, his name was Jerry Lewis. He was long heralded as the king of comedy. 
And reportedly, it was John F. Kennedy who gave him the placard of it, having heard before Jerry Lewis say it, but reportedly that plaque landed, this statement on a plaque landed on his dressing room wall for the majority of his career, and it said this, that there are three things that are real, God, human folly, and laughter. And since the first two are beyond comprehension, we must do the best we can with the third. You see, this is what Kohelet seems to be choosing to do, to choose to use comedy and laughter to look away from God and to look away from the human condition. And he says, though, in the end, what did it even accomplish? It's madness. Verse 3, I searched my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine, but he found that he could not drink away his sorrow. Just like you and I are probably all yet to find someone who tells us, my life was difficult and I had my issues, but then I started heavily drinking and everything got better. He's finding the same reality to be true. He sets out then to make himself the talk of the town. That's what he's talking about in the remainder of this section, where it's the size of his home that he's trying to impress people with. It's the extravagance of his gardens. It's the amassment of possessions. It's the growth of his business and his wealth. It's his highbrow and lowbrow indulgences. It's the arts that he mentions, and then it's his sexual escapades. So then he says in verse 9, So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained within me. Now think about that. He's saying, the whole time I'm trying to keep my wits about me to go, what's going to work? What can fix this? What form of pleasure can satisfy the longing of my heart? Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. Another translation, I got whatever I wanted and did whatever made me happy. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor He's saying that for the moment, he was enjoying it all, and this was my reward from all my labor. He's saying the simple momentary pleasure was his reward, and that was it. And then I looked on all the works of my hands that had done, and on all the labor I had toiled, and indeed all of it was vanity and grasping for the wind. The root word in Hebrew for grasping there is actually, it's interesting because it's shepherding. He's saying that all of it, it's some sort of a euphemism from an ancient time that, that would probably be comparable to us saying, it's like trying to herd cats. That I was trying to shepherd the wind. He's saying, this is a lost cause. We have our own terms for it today. And then he finishes by saying that there was no prophet under the sun. Okay, now bear with me because I want to make an important transition point here. So hang on, hang with me. You see, the voice of Ecclesiastes, ancient forms of pleasure, they are no different from our modern pursuit of pleasure, and they are no different in that they're still not working. I mean, categorically, they're no different in that they're the same, but you need to also understand they're no different in that they also leave us just as empty as they did him. Because he's describing here, think about how similar they are, his pursuit of pleasure to our modern look at life and how to find happiness. He lists things like jokes and laughter and a good time. It's alcohol or the production of art or the accumulation of possessions. It's money, music, and sex. It's affirmation or what he then distorts into the admiration of of others. It's celebrity status that he's after. Even his own work becomes a way for him to pursue pleasure. You see, he's right. He's rightly said it before when he said that there is nothing new under the sun We're thousands of years after this, and we are still chasing the same exact things, and they are still failing us. They still can't give and produce what we want to extract from them. Modern voices echo these very same sentiments. People like Jim Carrey, the famous actor and comedian, when he famously said, I think that everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. It's NBA superstar DeMar DeRozan, whose mental health battle and suicidal ideation has spilled over into the public eye and was greatly scrutinized by some, to which DeRozan responded, saying, people say, what are you depressed about? You can have anything that you want. I wish everyone in the world was rich so they could realize money isn't everything. 
There was actor George Clooney a number of years ago who was part of a series of interviews a UK television station produced where they showcased celebrities' luxury homes and lavish lifestyles, to which George Clooney, sitting in that lavish home, living his luxury lifestyle, he commented and said, well, what's the guy in the big house on the hill got to complain about? But the truth is, the big house on the hill is isolating. There's just no other way for me to say it. Actress Megan Fox, shortly after landing a lead role in a major motion picture, responded to an interview question about how she was enjoying life now as a celebrity, now that you've arrived. She said, I don't think people understand. They all think that we should shut up and stop complaining because you've got a big house or drive a Bentley, so your life should be great. What people don't realize is that fame... I mean, whatever your worst experience in high school, when you were being bullied by those 10 kids in high school, fame is that, but on a global scale. We're being bullied by millions of people constantly. There's an article by The Atlantic that they published just recently, just over a year ago, entitled, To Be Happy, Hide from the Spotlight. I'll read you this excerpt from the article. And a quote, in many cases, tobacco, drug use, and to some extent, unhealthy foods, We as a society have now recognized these tendencies and taken steps to combat them by educating others about their ill effects. Why have we failed to do so with fame? None of us, nor our children, will ever find fulfillment through the judgment of strangers. The right rule of thumb is to treat fame like a dangerous drug. Never seek it for its own sake. Teach your kids to avoid it and shun those who offer it. Or here's this quote from a powerful and influential leader who seemingly has it all. I got whatever I wanted and did whatever made me happy. Then I thought about everything I'd ever done, including the hard work, and it simply was chasing the wind. Nothing on earth is worth the trouble, the writer of Ecclesiastes says. You see, he's rightly said it before, there's nothing new under the sun. These are the same things people are still chasing. And these are the same things empty people are still drawing the same conclusions about that this isn't it. Pleasure is is not even a thing in and of itself. It's something we try to extract from other things and circumstances. And those things we look for pleasure and meaning and purpose from, they're not even inherently bad things. They're potentially really good things that are being used, though, and abused and distorted. They're turned from a good thing that may even be a gift from God. They're turned from a good thing and made into the ultimate thing. Jokes, laughter, and a good time with friends are not a bad thing. Any more than a glass of wine or a piece of fine art or having nice things is a bad thing, or enjoying good music or making love with your spouse or being happy with your work. Those are not bad things in and of themselves. These are things that God has made and given as a gift and wired us to enjoy. But in the words of C.S. Lewis from his book, The Weight of Glory, he said it this way. He says, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. These things are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they are turned into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. You see, idolatry happens when we turn even what's a good thing into the ultimate thing. As the preacher's here doing in his search for the good life, his search for meaning and purpose, for security and significance. There's a book that we have on our resource table that I really recommend to you that discusses this. It's entitled Counterfeit Gods. And if you're not a reader, then get the audio book because it's really great. But the book points out that the Bible is clear in displaying that the human heart is like an idol-making factory. Scripture reveals that the human heart in its broken state will turn even good things like a marriage or a family or children or a successful career or freedom or beauty or skill or integrity or competency or comfort or desire to be loved by others. The human heart will make them into idols by making the good thing into the ultimate thing. The thing that we give anything we have up in order to have it the thing that no sacrifice seems too great if it means keeping that ultimate thing close by our side. 
You see, money and sex are not the only idols that rule the hearts of modern men and women. Good things that are made into the ultimate thing and the ultimate pursuit of our lives are the destructive idols that plague those outside the church and also, we have to admit, those of us inside it too. It's true, idolatry can take so many different forms, or we could say it this way, this way that many things can become an idol. As Martin Lloyd-Jones has famously said, he said, God has given me these gifts, but if I turn any of them into my God, I'm abusing them. I am worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And may I remind you of what an empty pursuit it is, because more never equates to enough. But this is where I remind you of the good news that this preacher is not the final voice in Scripture, that there, in fact, is a second, a greater preacher and king from the line of David, and that's where Jesus arrives and comes preaching that the things that we overvalue, that we treasure, he points out saying they are decaying and unable to give lasting satisfaction because of that. But then he would teach that there are other kinds of treasures that wrath, or excuse me, (laughs) moth and rust. That's what wrath is, I guess, moth and rust together. They cannot touch. It's the shorthand for it. He says that there are things that can give everlasting, lasting fulfillment. It's in the great Sermon on the Mount that he says from Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. My friends, as the writer of Ecclesiastes will conclude at the end of the book, at the end of chapter 12, that a life lived in reverence to God and with an eye fixed on eternity is the best life to live, Jesus, the second preaching king, will come and point our eyes in that very same direction to the to the the horizon of eternity ahead of us. Again, quoting C.S. Lewis from The Weight of Glory, he said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We, too, are far too easily pleased. See, this is the cold truth for all of us, that life under the sun is really hard. We're feeling that, I think, as a church, that it's difficult and painful. And not unlike the preacher, we have a tendency as 21st century people living in this sin-splintered, broken world to lift the glass of pleasure in hopes of drowning our sorrows and finding an escape. And it may be alcohol that, that we find in that glass, or it might be the pursuit of passion and love, or of becoming a homeowner and starting a family, or success and travel. It might even just be retirement and freedom to relax. These are the pleasures we think will make for the good life, but we find that they can't deliver what they promised to provide for us. So why then do we find ourselves continually running back to pleasure when the pain of life under the sun hits us? Let's wrap up with that question. Why then do we find ourselves continually running back to pleasure when the pain of life under the sun hits us? I mean, what happens when we're brought face to face with brokenness and pain in our sin-splintered, broken world? Years ago, I remember reading something where someone was, the author was highlighting different cultural responses to suffering and pain. The first that I'll present to you is the idea of the stereotypical secular humanist Westerner. He's talking about us. (laughs) Who thinks when they're faced with brokenness and pain, well, maybe there's a God and a higher power. Maybe not. Either way, the goal is happiness. Remove anything that impedes progress towards that goal of being happy. After all, in our own country, it is in our Declaration of Independence that this is something that no one can take from us, that God has given us a right to pursue this very thing, happiness. If that's the worldview we hold on to, then you typically just look to distract yourself 
when faced with pain. It's self-medication. It's alcohol, pornography, and sex. It's, it's diving headlong into your career as a workaholic. It's a good Netflix binge over the weekend, so you're just back in the grind again. Even in our context, serving others as a way to hide and distract from the lack of meaning you find in life or the lack of purpose you find in yourself unless you're busy feeling like you're accomplishing something. That's the stereotypical secular humanist Westerner. Our response is distraction to pain. Eastern thinking is different. Maybe you picture Buddhism. It's the belief that, Eastern thinking, is the belief that all suffering is the result of a misguided desire or attachment. The problem is you love the wrong things. So what you need to do is detach from desire and feeling completely. And if you do, you'll be happy and free. It's not distract yourself, it's detach yourself. And I'll tell you, this line of thinking is so close, but so far away. Because yes, some of our issues are misguided desires and unhealthy attachments to things that we should sever. However, the answer is not just to detach yourself from all feeling or desire. God in heaven himself has not functioned this way. Jesus did not function this way. We are instructed to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep, not just to turn off when, when you or others experience negative emotion. Oh, the Western thought is, de, is denial. It's, it's for me just to look and distract myself, but, but no, the Eastern thought is detachment. But what about the spiritual thought, the typical Christian thinking? Well, the way of dealing with emotional pain is really for many of us to act like nothing's wrong, to sing another worship song or, or to quote another verse or to attend another church gathering. Yes, in moments, we, we need to tell our emotions to get in line. But for some of us, we've had our emotions respond and say, screw you, pal. And then we go, well, what am I supposed to do? Because we find that we can't control our emotions. Yes, we can influence them with the control we have over our thought life, but our emotions didn't come with a clapper. We just clap on and clap off. It doesn't work that way. You see, for many of us growing up in the church, we felt the pressure then to fake it and to act happy and okay because it felt sinful and wrong to not be okay. So we walked through life, not like these other ideologies we've talked about, where it's distraction or detachment. No, for us, we walk through life with denial as our main reaction to pain and disappointment. But the problem is the pain and disappointment in life in a broken world doesn't go away. It only gets worse, and then it manifests in an ugly way. There's got to be a better way. Jesus exemplified a better way. Jesus walked through pain so differently. Picture Gethsemane where Jesus went to the place of pain and the Father met him there. He didn't choose to distract himself from the pain. He didn't choose to detach himself from the pain. He didn't even choose to deny the pain. Instead, Jesus gave the Father his despair when in Gethsemane he said, I'm sorrowful unto the point of death. He said, I'm feeling this so deeply, I don't know that I get up off the ground again. He gave the father his despair, but he also gave the father his desire. When he said, is there any other way? If there is, then take this way. This cup, cup is an Old Testament picture of judgment. Take the judgment that I'm about to receive, the wrath of God poured out on me for the sin of the world. Is there any other way? Then let's do this some other way. He gave the father his despair. He gave the father his desire, can't you rescue me from this? But he also gave the father his trust. And he faced it head on. And he drank deep of the cup that the father gave him to drink from. He fully embraced the brokenness of life. He experienced it and was able to walk through it. Because he gave the father his despair. Because he gave him his desire. But he also was willing to give him his trust. And he could do that, Scripture says, because of the joy set before him. He looked beyond the temporal pain to see the glory of eternity free of pain, to see heaven and earth united again. For us, this kind of faith that's willing and able to do this finds itself firmly rooted in the cross of Christ and nowhere else. If you're going to trust Jesus like this, if you're going to trust the Father like Jesus did, 
you'll need to have a clear and consistent view of Jesus' cross in mind, where God demonstrated the depth of his love for you. That's why the writer in Hebrews, in chapter 12, he says this, he says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. The Greek language there is to look away from everything else and only towards Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Jesus went to the place of pain and the Father met him there. It wasn't distraction that he chose or even detachment or denial. No, he embraced it, experienced it, and walked through it. What happens when we are brought face to face with brokenness and pain in our sin-splintered broken world? And when pleasure can't drown it away, we have to do as Jesus did. You see, all of us deal with brokenness in our world, and we deal with weaknesses in ourselves. At the fall, the earth took on a curse and as the byproduct of man's rebellion against God. And, and that curse would affect society forever. Both human individuals and society as a whole, relationships within society, would be marked by pain and disappointment. This would also impact our work forever, that thorns and thistles came out of the ground. There's God's way of telling you that frustration and failure would be a part of the human experience from here on out. See, the curse and brokenness we face, though, was meant to drive us to our knees to recognize our need for a Savior. However, instead of letting those things drive us to God, we run from them and bearing them, hoping that the intoxication of pleasure will numb us to their realities. But every single one of us are broken, damaged, cracked, imperfect. It's something all of us, unfortunately, share in common. And our world treats weakness and failure as terminal. It's viewed as the end. And to let someone see it, it's over. God sees it as just the beginning, though. Because he says things like that this wound becomes a conduit, a channel that I'll pour my life and love and power in and through. That this is the way, your weakness, admitting that it's there, is the way to greater strength. Because when you are weak, you'll see the need for my strength, and I'll give it to you. You'll find that you're strong. Listen, what if God is less interested in just healing and completely removing all of our hurts than he is in leaving and using some of those wounds that remain? That isn't exploitation. Because I have come to believe that some of those wounds that remain in my life have begun to give me more than they cost me. See, Jacob walked with a limp for the rest of his life after wrestling with God. Paul had a thorn in the flesh that he wasn't relieved of. And I have insecurities and wounds that I wish that Jesus would just heal and completely remove in an instant. Instead, though, he's turned some of those isolating, deep and empty wounds and pits of my pain and life into deep reservoirs that house the living water of his grace and love so that I can know him more intimately, and so I can dispense what he has freely given to me. I can show others the love and grace that he's poured out on me. Pain and victim is not my identity or yours. Pain does not define us. It's meant to propel us back to Jesus and his goodness. It's the pathway leading us back to him in our brokenness, which means if that's true, we don't have to distract ourselves or detach ourselves or deny the reality that we face. Author Pete Scazzaro said it this way. He says, when I'm fully aware of how broken and fragile I am, I gain a small glimpse into how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know experientially this love that surpasses knowledge. To the extent to which I'm in touch with my lostness and brokenness is the extent to which I grasp the glory of the gospel and am able to revel in the Father's love for me. You know, I wish it wasn't true. But we as a church, it feels like we're living this, aren't we? We're, we're experientially in Ecclesiastes. I don't know if you feel this way, but I sure do. 
the last couple of weeks, I've just stopped and looked at this and been like, God, I feel like in your sovereignty, you took us here, that we begin to look at this together, the harsh reality of life in a broken system, because we're already having to face it. It's the pot calling the kettle black. Like, this is our experience as a church. The very week that we'd dive into Ecclesiastes is the week that we would bury an individual from our church as Carol Bruton entered heaven. That in a three-week period, a small community like ours would then suffer the loss of a second beloved member of our community. And Ray Eaton this week, opening his eyes in the presence of God on Wednesday morning. Simultaneously, at the same time as all that's going on in our church community, we've had people who have begun over these last few weeks treatment for cancer. We've had people who are dealing with the disorientation that comes from unemployment. People who have dealt and walked through miscarriages. The, the others who are dealing with the looming fear of medical analysis that they're waiting to get results from. We've had people with all sorts of kinds of heartbreak in just such a short period of time because we're living in a sin-splintered, broken world and we're seeing all the system glitches inside of it. For many of us, we're already asking, what happens when pleasure can no longer mask the pain of life under the sun? For us, though, we remember that there is life above the sun. We remember that we have a future with God where tears are wiped away and wrongs are made right. Early this morning, just thinking about, man, it's been a hard stretch on so many of you. That are the words of the old Irish poet. And he's great because he's Irish, but he's also great because he said this. He said, earth has no sorrow, heaven cannot heal. You see, our hope for our future is rooted in a risen Savior. And that is a hope that is a secure future. Christ, my substitute, crying out, it's finished. He's paid for it all. That hope is a hope in a reunion with those that we've loved and lost who have placed their faith in Jesus. That is a hope of, in the words of J.R. Token, that everything sad becomes untrue. I think God's taken us to the message of Ecclesiastes because life in a broken world already took us there. But to remember that there's a second preacher who speaks up and says things are different. I'll close with Jesus' words. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. But you know the story. His friend, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. We don't know the way to get there. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus, I'm so thankful for the voice of you, the second preacher, the preaching king from the line of David who came to give us a whole new paradigm for life. Who can say more than meaningless and empty. Who could in triumph yell that it's finished and completed. Who in the future your voice is heard saying, Behold, I've made all things new again. Jesus, our attention is turned your direction. Our life in a broken world, Father, it's hard and it's a gut punch lately. But Jesus, we look beyond life under the sun to look at life beyond it. Jesus, we remember you today. And I'm praying for hearts that need encouragement that today you would be the lifter of our heads. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.